Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. As I've mentioned before, the podcast Guest Connection Group on Facebook has been a wonderful source of guests over the last two years, and that's where I connected with our guest today, Kellen Flukiger. Before leaping off the corporate ladder and forging his new path as a leadership coach and mentor, Kellen spent many years working in the electric power industry. During the podcast, you'll hear references to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the California Independent System Operator, and a few other electricity-related organizations, but I assure you it's not necessary to know exactly what they do to appreciate and understand Kellen's story. For the past 15 years, he has devoted himself to helping others, in his words, combine their thoughts, language, and actions into an unstoppable success machine. He's also the author of more than a dozen books on leadership, which are available on Amazon, a link to which you can find in the show notes. Kellen and I discuss the techniques he's used to help governors, senators, government ministers, CEOs, and even a Super Bowl winner achieve success and the role that communication plays in making it all happen. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'll ask you to tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and uh, how your family uh, made its way to the United States and uh, how long ago that took place. So Flukiger is Swiss, uh, the German part of Switzerland. But if you look up the map that shows the concentration of names and stuff, Switzerland is one in 1,200. So a tenth of a, a hundred tenth of a percent is Flukiger, which is there are parts of Switzerland where it's as common as Smith almost. And then Germany, you know, a hundredth of that. And then nowhere else in the world, except there's a tiny a few in North America. I'm in Canada. But uh, the three brothers in the end of the 1800s from one family came over and settled in as farmers in a valley called Star Valley, Wyoming, which is on the Wyoming-Idaho border, just about 80 miles south of Jackson Hole. It's a gorgeous place, and there's a cemetery in a little town there called the Flukiger Cemetery, and I own a plot. So... Um, that's where they came from. They came from the old country to there in 1889 or 90 or 91 or two or somewhere in that neighborhood, 120 or 30 years ago. Every single Flukiger I've met in North America, U.S. or Canada, can be traced to those three. I'm not saying there aren't any others, but I've certainly never found any. And it's not unusual for me to go to a giant city like Houston or in the days when we had phone books and open the phone book and there wouldn't be any. So that's not unusual at all. It's an extraordinarily unusual name outside of Switzerland and a little bit of uh, a tiny bit of Germany. That's where Flukiger is. It's a weird name. Well, that's a little bit like Greenberger. Uh, There are a lot of Greenbergs, uh, but when you add the ER on the end, I think in some way I'm related to all of them <laughs> uh, somewhere back in the uh, back in the past. So you did you grow up in Wyoming or had your no. 
My, my mom and dad both grew up in Star Valley. Uh, they were married. My dad moved to San Francisco. He worked for Del Monte Corporation, and I was born in San Francisco. I grew up in the Bay Area and was there till I was 17. And my parents lived there for a while and then eventually sold. When my dad retired, they moved back to Wyoming, Star Valley. And my father passed away 25 years ago, but my mom still lives in the old homestead place she was born in. So that old house, we used to visit there in the summers as kids growing up. That was the dairy farm, and then my uncle ran it after that. So in the summertime, there was a lot of alfalfa, you know, to harvest and all that sort of stuff. So it was a dairy farm with alfalfa and barley, and I got my share of mending fences, milking cows, and hauling hay. It's always a, a good way to grow up and uh, life skills, I'm sure, that you've used along the way. And you said you're in Canada now? Is that? I am. I'm uh, uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, which is okay. north of Montana. Uh, yeah. Up there, it's the capital of Alberta, and... Oh, it's all up here, part of the frozen north. I came up here in 2003, contract for the government, assistant deputy minister for energy, and ran their electricity stuff. That was in the wake of the work I did in energy and electricity markets in California when the Enron fiasco happened in California. Utilities went bankrupt. I was in the middle of that. My, actually, the in the book, they wrote about the collapse of Enron called The Smartest Guys in the Room. They did that book and made a movie. My name's actually in that book. And I was in the meetings they show in the movie that were in the governor's office during the middle of the energy crisis. I was actually in the real meetings. I wasn't in the movie, but I was in the real meetings. Well, I have done and continue to do a lot of work in the uh, energy industry, particularly electric power. I got my start as a reporter for a magazine called Public Utilities Fortnightly. Oh, um, yeah. Not many people know it, but if you've, you're in that business, you've probably heard of it. And so I'm sure we've uh, we could swap some stories about uh, our experiences there, but I won't take our listeners' time <laughs> with that. Yeah, right you'll, then you will have known about the California ISO and all the sure. big. I was the COO, I was chief operating officer there for quite some ah, time okay. before I came up to Alberta to, because Alberta deregulated when California did, and they had a mess mm-hmm. here after the Enron stuff, and I came up here to fix their electricity market. I'm, of course, interested in what you do from a professional standpoint, but in doing a little bit of research before this conversation, I discovered that a lot of what you encourage others to do, I think, is based on your own struggles with depression and addiction. And I wanted to ask, you know, how did you pull yourself out of those difficulties and apply the lessons that you learned into the approach uh, you know, that you uh, coach others uh, in terms of uh, life and leadership? Well, I spent 30 years in energy from 1977 to 2007, uh, including some very, very high-ranking positions. Uh, COO and C-suite stuff in, in several companies. Also in Canada, I had ended up with a contract with the Queen of England when they brought me up here. Technically, all the contracts up here like that. But anyway, so I had a lot of high-profile stuff, but it, it, the depression started way before that. So from the outside, my career journey looked pretty spectacular. Uh, I made a lot of money, a lot of high-ranking position, blah, blah, blah. I was raised in a two-family, two-parent family middle-class-ish, and my mom was got married young, and she had a very particular view about religion and behavior, and so she used to enforce it with violence that today would be felony child abuse. And I remember, for example, clear into high school, getting dressed last in the locker room because I was uh, I didn't want anybody to see that I was black and blue. And so I was frightened and embarrassed and that sort of thing. What, what happened, I left home at 17, and what I took with me was a an absolute certainty that I was not good enough, I would never be good enough, and that my main goal in life was to prove to my mom that I was okay. 
And as warped as that sounds, you think you'd get out of it and you'd get over it, but you don't unless you do something. And the tail end of that learning was, and you can't talk to anybody. It's all private because you, you know, if you suck, it's your fault, suck it up, that sort of thing that used to be until just a few years ago, the sort of conversation around mental health altogether. So I lived that 30 years of energy on a roller coaster. From the outside, it looked like I had tremendous success, very high-ranking positions, um, and made a lot of money. And behind the scenes, I was a personal disaster. Uh, I finally wrote about all that in the book, Tightrope of Depression, my journey from darkness, despair, and death to light, love, and life, and didn't know how to fix it. I went up and down. I was married and divorced three times. I was uh, had a lot of experience with rehab and drugs and alcohol and, and was able still to hold down this stuff. But I also did a lot of self-sabotage. So I created big success in this career and then did something to trash it and then did it again and did it again and did it again. And in 2007, I had a dramatic turn of events, a divine intervention that changed my life, period. And I walked away from 30 years of career, walked away from the entire industry and started life all over again. So that divine intervention, I'll tell the shortest version I can. I, I got home on a Friday night in August of 2007, and I was at the height of everything. I was making so much money that my $3,000 a week cocaine addiction didn't matter and was single again for the third time. I had four of my 10 children living with me. They were teenagers. Three were grown up and married, and three were with, it's embarrassing to say, but one of my exes. And I was getting ready to go out party for the weekend, and for some reason I felt compelled to turn on the television. Now, that doesn't sound like anything, except I didn't watch TV. Hmm. I'd had somebody from the electronics store come in, put the biggest, coolest stuff in you could, because that's what you buy, right, when you make all that money. But I didn't watch, so I grabbed the remote and realized, uh, yeah, I don't know how to do this. So one of the kids came in and turned it on and kind of threw it at me, dipweed, and left the room. And it landed on a program I'd never heard of called Intervention, which, of course, is a reality TV show about families who stage interventions for busted loved ones. So, uh, And the protagonist was a high-ranking executive with a cocaine problem. So I watched myself on TV for about 10 minutes and said, I'm not watching this crap. And I turned it off and went to do some more stuff and was ready to walk out the front door. And I just couldn't leave. I felt compelled to turn on the TV again. So I did. And that program started over at the beginning. No, I don't have a DVR. No, it wasn't on the schedule. No, it can't do that. I got that. But it did. And I'm like, holy crap. So I watched this program. It went badly. The guy yelled at his family and didn't want any help, but it freaked me out enough that I went to bed instead of going out to party for the weekend. And when I went to bed, I went to hell. And what I mean by that is I went somewhere. It felt out of body. I was in something that felt like a big theater. I was the only person there. It was empty. And on the stage were all the scenes from my life, starting with when I was young, all the suffering that had been inflicted on me, and then all the way through all the suffering I had inflicted on everybody else with the failed relationships and failures of dad and addictions and everything else. And it was the most intense experience. We don't have words. It's just the most horrific suffering I can imagine. Anyway, after a very long period of time, a voice simply said, it is enough. I woke up and the sun was shining in the window, which was weird because the windows faced west. I got up and I realized it was five o'clock Saturday afternoon. So I'd been somewhere for nearly 18 hours and realized that when I got up that I'd been invited to change. I had no idea what to do or how to do it or what was going on, but I knew I had to get away from everything and start all over again. So I threw $1,000 worth of stuff away that I had laying around and quit cold turkey straight up one day to the next. 
and that was the first half because that got me sober, but it did nothing to deal with the self-loathing, which actually was the real addiction. A lot of successful people, and this is something for your listeners in terms of communication and understanding, nothing is as it seems. People look like whatever they look like. And I used to put on the three-piece Armani, go downtown, do battle, and do all kinds of crazy stuff in terms of power, this, that, and the other. And part of my career, I was a one-name person in the industry. You know, Kellen's coming. Probably because my last name's Flukiger, but, you know, okay. But anyway, yeah, but, you know, behind the scenes, I was a disaster. Lights would go out, and I'd go home at night, and I didn't know who I was. Anyway, two weeks later, I hadn't quit yet. And one of the things about my position, and you'll be familiar with this, as leaders, we get free stuff. People give you free tickets to this and free bottles of that and all kinds of expensive things because you make decisions that matter. So I got a pair of tickets to see a Yo-Yo Ma concert. Now, if you're classical music, you know who that is. And if you don't, you don't. But in the classical world, that's like, ah! So I thought, oh, it'd be a terrible shame to waste this other ticket because I I was single, right? And so I asked in the groups that I managed, uh, who likes classical music? And some lady in one of the groups said, well, uh, I do. And I said, looked at her and said, have have I ever given you anything before? And she said, "Uh, no. Uh, Okay, fine. See you there. So I gave her the ticket. That was it. We met at the venue. The concert was spectacular. And I'm now two weeks stone cold sober at this point. Halfway through the show, this feeling came over me that was reminiscent of the feeling I'd had two weeks ago. And this voice said in my head, you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane. I said, I've screwed that up three times officially with some other messes in between. That is not happening. Later that night, we were backstage because, of course, they were backstage passes. And the voice came back, comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And I argued like crazy because, you know, she could have me arrested for harassment or whatever. I mean, she worked in one of my groups, right? But I, you don't win those arguments. So I did, and it went about like you would have expected. Are you out of your mind? I mean, I didn't even know if she had a boy I, boyfriend. I didn't think she was married, but I didn't know her very well, right? Right. So uh, she didn't call the cops. That was the good thing, <laughs> and she didn't turn me in. Anyway, over the next two weeks, she had her own set of experiences, and in two weeks after that concert, she resigned. I walked away from millions of dollars in contracts. We walked off into the sunset together, and three months ago, we celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary. Mm. Now, besides being an astounding story, the reason that's important is that was the tool, the person, the angel that was sent to help me deal with the self-loathing and depression that had controlled my life for my whole life from the time I left home at 17 until 52. So 35 years of total silence, never talking to a soul. So that's the story. It's a long story a bit but and unbelievable, but it's what happened and it's why I changed. Since that time, I've written 16 books. I've created a coaching practice around the world. My goal is to help 10 million people this year discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts, to understand who they really are, to, to end the, the fear, procrastination, and self-sabotage that affects everybody, including maybe especially high-powered people who find themselves isolated a lot because of those positions. That is a fascinating story, and I can tell you that is something else we share. I am newly in recovery myself after uh, many years of addiction. Finally, uh, in my case, you know, they say it only ends in jails, institutions, or death. And I got lucky and wound up in an institution, hospitalized after my fourth or fifth overdose. And uh, I had, wouldn't say it's an out-of-body experience exactly, but I lost my mind, I think is the best way to put it, um, in a very literal sense. And yeah, wound up experiencing all kinds of hallucinations and so forth. Uh, 
it was terrifying, but it was exactly what I needed to sort of recognize, not sort of, to recognize that I had a problem that I couldn't solve on my own and that I needed help. And uh, I'm very fortunate that I have a you know a loving family, a very understanding partner, uh, and uh, also supportive bosses and just everybody around me. And when I said I needed help, they all sprang into action and wound up uh, finding me a rehab in Texas that I did for 35 days. And so I am uh, closing in on six months. Uh, so uh, newly sober, but very happily so. And I think for you know the first time in many years, I feel like I've, I've got a beat. I love it. And I love you for sharing it. And I love the whole thing. Uh, you know, well, all it demonstrates to me is, look, the method is different. My family had ostracized me and disowned me. So I was literally absolutely alone. But that didn't matter to the divine. You know, it's like, yeah, you do. God's saying to me, <clears throat> you obviously don't know how to do this. Let me help you. That one. Right. You know, in terms of a partner or someone. And I've asked her a hundred times, like, what on earth would possess you to leave the career you had? It was a nice career. She was not. I mean, she had a good job. She was a project manager, blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know, I wouldn't know, except I just knew to the core of my soul it was the right thing to do. And so everybody knew in the office I was a drug addict. I mean, they knew, but they didn't know. You know the drill. So, you know, there's no explanation except there is more to life than meets the eye. And when we get locked around, locked up in chasing what we are taught is important, we lose sight of the truth of who we are. And I can tell you from being in a place where I had way more money than brains, money doesn't give you anything that lasts or creates happiness. I can promise you that. I don't think he was the first to say it, but one of my dad's uh, favorite uh, sayings is money only solves money problems. And most of life's most difficult problems are not money problems. That's absolutely. It buys access and it buys some toys, but it doesn't buy happy. So, well, Let's get back to your, or move on, I guess, to your more of your professional uh, career and what you've been doing, I guess, for the last 15 years or so. I noticed that you describe yourself as a trans transformational leadership mentor. So I thought I would ask if you could tell us a little bit about what that means and how that influences your approach to leadership. Leadership all begins inside. Leadership is not a, and this isn't stuff I knew when I was first, you know, coming up to the ranks and got my first management and then executive position, but leadership is an internal process. If you can't lead yourself, then you can't be very effective for the long term at leading others. Leadership depends on truth and on transparency. It depends on articulating and living into a vision. It's not very effective as a leader if you talk, tell people to do something over there. If you're not invested, you're not transparent, and they can't depend on you. So transformational leadership simply means most leaders, you know, they have leadership charm schools where they send managers and managers and executives to month-long residential programs at Harvard or the University of Idaho or someplace like that. I've attended my share of those. They don't teach you anything about truth. They don't teach you anything about the energy of integrity. You know, they teach you uh, conversational attitude, I mean, attitudes and techniques. They teach you some listening skills and everything else, but it is all founded in the truth of one thing. Everything in life you want, you can have if 
you choose to show up as the person who creates that. So what it means is focus on who you're being. Like, who are you being? And I know that sounds woo-woo and weird, but are you showing up every day as an energetic, transparent person full of integrity? Would you do the things in the same way and with the same excellence that you would expect others to do as a leader? Are, are you willing to listen and to care about your people? All that squishy crap you don't learn in school is the foundation of lasting leadership, and it starts inside. So the first transformation is figuring out who you are as a person and how that affects who you're being as a leader. And then, and only then, do you even begin to think about how the relationships you have work and how you can be someone different so that you have the tools and the energy and the truth to create relationships that work. One thing you mentioned there is listening. And I think that that's an absolutely essential component of being a good communicator. It's not just talking or sharing or presenting. It's really listening to what the person that you're trying to influence, persuade, change their minds, what have you, and understanding where they're coming from so that you can establish a connection that can enable you to actually be effective. It reminds me of two parts. One of Covey's seven habits was seek first to be understood or to understand, then to be understood. So seven habits is still one of the seminal works on all that stuff. And I can't remember which habit, but it's seek first to understand, then to be understood. And that means truly understand and comprehend, get the place and position of the other person, even if you can't give them all or part of it. That's number one. And the second piece is caring about like the minute someone feels ignored or attacked they quit listening so even if you do the first part and you understand them thoroughly and you've somehow collected the patience and attention to listen thoroughly and you really truly understand it the minute someone feels corrected attacked, uh, diminished, denigrated in any way, they quit listening. And at that moment, all of their internal energy doesn't go to resolution. It goes to defense, uh, a defense of where they have been, what they've done, why it isn't wrong or not the best. And so if you want good communication, it has to be conducted in a way that is invitational. It invites understanding and dialogue. And that kind of atmosphere is totally creatable. But it depends, again, on who you're being. If you're insecure as a leader, if you feel like you need to be in charge and you need to tell people what to do, you can't create that kind of connected conversation. You can't. And so you have to work on that first. You have to be clear. Yeah, you may be in charge, but exercising that authority is not usually very effective until and unless there is complete understanding on both sides. And you might say, well, that takes too long. The answer is it takes way less time to do that and do it right than to have to micromanage or repeatedly correct, reassign, redo, or whatever it is that are the consequences of lack of cooperation and buy-in. You touched on one of the central tenets of the field of risk communication. Most of what I learned came from an expert named Vincent Cabello, who's a professor at Columbia University and one of the earliest purveyors of risk communication skills. And one of the things that he teaches is that there are four criteria by which most people determine whether or not you are a 
trustworthy and credible source of information. And the most important is caring and empathy. People want to know, it's sort of the old adage, people don't they care what you know until they know that you care. And if you can't position yourself as caring and empathetic, and it, it, it's not an act, you know, you can't make it up. Uh, you actually have to be uh, caring and empathetic. But if you can't do that, then you're not going to be an effective communicator. There's really no point in even trying. And so a lot of the skills and techniques of risk communication are aimed at helping people to discover their caring and empathetic side so they can let it show through and demonstrate that in the case of many of my clients who work for large corporations, that they're not a corporation. They are a person who has the same feelings and fears and concerns that the people they're trying to communicate with have. And once you can establish that connection, then you can start to communicate you know, messages or facts or data or what have you. But uh, until that's there, you're just not going to be successful. Often when I'm working with someone and we're talking about listening or even business owners signing clients, people have to find their clients, other coaches, people in leadership positions in companies. The first thing I say is, well, the first thing you need to exercise is your give a crap muscle. And if you don't have one, then we need to figure that where that is and get to work on it. Because until that's strong, which is what you just said, I'm just saying it in a kind of a silly way, but I just call it your give a crap muscle. And if you don't, you got a problem. So we've talked about listening is an important element of communication. Uh, give a crap, another <laughs> important <laughs> element. Are there others that you would encourage people you work with to other muscles to exercise in order to be an effective leader? Yes, there are. So let's think about that for a minute. Creating rapport is an outcome of good listening. A way that I help people understand how to do that is there are three things in my mind that create quick rapport. Shared experience, shared goal, shared worldview. Uh, an example I give all the time is I was sitting on a plane next to a dude flying, flying somewhere. He obviously didn't want to have a conversation. Flight was long. I got bored. I said something. Uh, I said, what do you do? Yeah, real estate. You know, I always ask, are you going home? Are you going to work? You know, whatever about the flight. And then he handed me a card. He was a commercial realtor, realtor. And then he said something about recording studio that he also had that on the side. Well, I've owned a recording studio for 40 years. I'm a musician. I've been in a group that's charted number one on billboard three times, and I still have a studio over there and I do albums. I did an album with two or three of my books of 11 songs to tell stories from the depression books. And so then immediately we had this shared experience. So the rest of the entire flight, was an easy, no barrier, fluid conversation about recording, about music, about techniques, about clients, about things, about the development of the industry. And it was easy and it was fun and all the barriers came down. Why? We had a shared experience. Shared goal is another thing where you might get people from a disparate background and they come together in the PTA to raise money for the band uniforms. All of a sudden, because they're there all to raise money for the band uniforms, they're all working together, even if they didn't know each other at all a little bit before, because they're talking about this thing. And then the humanity of all of it seeps in and a shared worldview, uh, you know, even taboo subjects like politics and religion. If people share that, then immediately there's a bond and they can create some level of rapport that allows connection. And there's other ways to describe those. But if you're listening, if you truly listen, you can find things that you have that are a shared experience, goal, or worldview that are authentic. You're not pretending. There's a real thing there. And so people ask about, you know, where do my clients come from? Where do I get clients? Well, I never look for clients. I have a sign on my wall. Says I never look for clients. I look for people to love, opportunities to serve, and problems to solve. 
Now, I can love somebody without their permission, and I give it a definition. To love someone is a verb. It's a choice to use your resources, spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental resources, to serve someone in their highest interest. So I can do that without anybody's permission. If I'm going to serve, I look for people to love, opportunities to serve. I need to know a little bit so I don't do the equivalent of bringing someone who's gluten intolerant a bowl of pasta or something, right? And problems to solve is a layer deeper where people share something they're really working on and we can talk about it. And I find in that way, genuinely asking questions because I do care, give a crap, and finding out what's going on in their life. People talk. People want to talk. And if you make it safe and you're actually interested, you can find out so much. And then if your goal is to see if you can help or serve them, and this is exactly in in negotiation, in the kinds of situations where there's problems to solve, one side taking it upon, one side needs to do this. And it will, you'd be surprised how much individual control you have. Because if you stop worrying about trying to say what you need to say and exhaust their need to say whatever they have to say by truly being interested and asking all kinds of questions, by the time they're ready to listen to you, and eventually people do say, well, I've been doing all the talking, tell me, blah, 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 you're armed and dangerous. Like, you know, everything they want, everything that's wrong, everything they've tried, what the problems are, what the last administration or law did wrong, you know all that. And so you're able to converse with them in the language that they have used, in the language that's important to them. And it didn't cost you anything except a bit of attention and caring. Well, you remind me of a a client that we worked with many years ago in the electric utility business. Uh, It was a CEO of a company in Michigan, and they owned nuclear power plant. And there had been a very small uh, release of radioactive water into a lake there, the cooling body for the plant. And the public meeting was called so that folks could ask questions of, of him and also of the regulator in Michigan, basically find out, you know, what happened? Is this dangerous? Should I be concerned? What are you doing to fix it? And so forth. And we got brought in to help prepare the CEO for this meeting. And of course, when we arrived, we learned that his in-house folks had been preparing him with the facts about what happened, you know, how much water was leaked, how contaminated was it, how long is it going to last, and so forth. And we really encouraged him and wound up convincing him that he shouldn't bother with any of that at all. What we learned is that the high school where the meeting was taking place was the high school that he had attended some 40 or 45 years prior, where his kids had attended high school. He still lived in the neighborhood not far away. And so we encouraged him to talk about that, to talk about the shared connection that he had with the people who were concerned about what had happened, uh, because he lived there too, and his kids grew up there. And he wanted to make sure that it was going to be safe and continue to be safe for him, his family, and all the families who lived around the plant and uh, got their drinking water from the lake or used it for recreational purposes or so forth. And so he did that, took a completely different approach. And you know, the meeting for him went very well. Now the uh, expert they brought in from uh, the regulator to talk about the water and the radioactivity and so forth, uh, he was just deluged with questions and difficult questions about what had happened. Uh, But they largely left the CEO alone because, yeah, he established that relationship with them and the shared connection. And so uh, they found him to be a trustworthy, incredible source of information. So what little he shared about what had happened, which was mostly we're going to get to the bottom of this and find out and make sure it never happens again, they they took uh, more or less at face value and directed all their most difficult questions uh, at the scientist who came in and and didn't uh, take that approach. So 
that story uh, helps to transition to my next question. Uh, I did have a chance to look through some of the books that you've published uh, that are available on Amazon.com. And one that caught my attention is entitled The Story Arc, Practical and Persuasive Magic for Authors, Speakers, and Product Creators. And I'm wondering if you can share a little from that book about how listeners can use stories to be more effective communicators, uh, both in difficult situations and in any situation. So it needs to start with the fact that before I left the utility industry or electricity industry, I didn't think I was an author at all. I'd written a few technical papers and done a lot of speaking at conferences, and I'd had to do some regulatory work and write some stuff that went to FERC and the regulator in Alberta and, you know, all kinds, that kind of stuff. But I'd never written, I never considered myself an author like a book. Are you kidding? When I finally decided to write them, I struggled like anyone would. How do you do this? How do you start? What do you do? How do you make it interesting? Holy crap. How many chapters? You know, all the stuff you'd think about, right? And and then I figured it out and started writing. I wrote a five-volume series on meditation because it was one of the key elements for me to get out of my own depression. And then I wrote Tightrope of Depression, which is a story about my own life. And then I started writing some, I wrote a business book called The Results Equation, From Dream to Done in Five Simple Steps, which is just about the process I'd used without defining it as such during my consulting career to do hard things and blah, blah, blah. After a while, I realized, you know, I actually know how to do this really good. Surprise, surprise. So then I started teaching classes and I have one starting this Wednesday day after tomorrow to help people who want to write a book, who want to write a book that's based on their experience and story. Now, it's not where you gear toward fiction writers. I'm not trying to turn out another Harry Potter, but people who have a collection of experiences that have made their life what it is and they think they can share it and help somebody, whatever, right? And so I started teaching classes. And after I did that for a couple of years, I thought, you know, this is really good. I should write that book. So I did. And that is the story arc. It is a process to help an individual who believes that their journey through life has taught them some things. They want to share it and they believe and know that they have something valuable to do that. It's how to organize your, how to identify and organize the events which made you you, how to then extract from that the things you'd like to teach in a coherent framework, how to teach it, and then how to help people get over their fear that maybe it won't work for them. So that's a, I use a rainbow because at the end of the rainbow is a pot of gold, right? So you're conducting essentially a monologue to help people get from whatever doubts and fears they had about whatever you're talking about to the pot of gold where they are somehow transformed, energized, more confident, more informed, educated, and capable about that thing. So the story arc is a book designed to help people share, identify, share, organize, present their story, whether it's in a book or in a product they might sell online or a keynote or a workshop or whatever it is where they have a, an audience, uh, whether it's a monologue or a dialogue, it depends on the situation. And it's helped with all those different formats so that people can bring their experiences and genius to world in some way. And a lot of people want to do one and then turn it into the other and use a book to help them get some speaking gigs or create a product or whatever. That's very familiar because that's essentially how I came to write my book is that I was giving a presentation that I had done many times. And at the end of this presentation, a woman came up and asked where she could buy my book. I said, well, you know, I, I don't have a book. And she said, well, that's too bad. You really should. And that's on the way home. That meeting was in Los Angeles. And on the way home cross country, I took out my laptop and started pecking out some thoughts and ideas for an outline. And, and there you go. The book was born. 
Amen. So that's it. So the story arc is the curriculum I use. I do. It's not a big part of my business. I run these really small workshops, like five or six or seven people for 90 days, maybe three or four times a year. And one just happens to be starting in a couple of days to help a small group of people. There's three or four in there to write a book. And it's something I do for fun. I love it. I enjoy helping people get over their fear and their worry and I don't have anything to say and nobody listen anyway and all that stuff that people who write books think until they write them and it's not true anymore. You mentioned another book, uh, The Results Equation, and the subtitle there is From Deep Dream to Done in Five Simple Steps. And I wonder if you could quickly walk us through those five steps. What I discovered, I mean, in the consulting work that I did, both in California and the Enron mess, there was a lot of money billions and billions and billions of dollars. In Alberta, the electricity market is $10 billion a year. Everybody knew that while the legislature made decisions and the minister recommended stuff, everybody knew Kellen was the person that made every decision in both those cases. In fact, when I went to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, one day I was talking to their chief economist at the time who said something to me and I said, yeah, I don't know. We have to go back to the board and do this and that. This is the Cal ISO. And he looked at me and he stopped short and went up and he said, what are you talking about? Everybody knows nobody does anything out there without you. And I said, what? He said, oh, for crying out loud, <laughs> everybody. And I thought, holy crap, you know, you're in Washington, D.C. and I'm California. So anyway, I, I sort of realized that. And after I started writing books, I started thinking about what what is the process to make something happen, particularly something hard. Like there's a lot of interplay. There's lots and lots of books that tell you about project planning and Gantt charts and how to you know do all that jazz. And I, I don't need to do that. There's so much more, particularly for small business and entrepreneurs, but even in big companies, there's a, there's a process to go from A to B. So I worked on that and I created an equation, probably because I had a math scholarship in high school, college. So I named it an equation, the results equation, but there isn't any math in it. There's five terms and it's the first one is up, and that stands for understand the present. The second one is me, which stands for mental earthquake. And the third one is uh, CF, which is create the future. And the fourth one is CP, which is courageous planning. And the fifth one is RE, which is relentless execution. And each one of those has some subparts and very specific ways to think about and how to iterate and what subloops are there. And one of the key pieces is creating something called a step map, which would look like someone's Gantt chart, except the big difference, especially for individuals, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, is a step map requires you to tie specifically the estimated time of all the thing, which I put in adjustment factors and help people understand why they underestimate how long things take to put it actually in your calendar because until you put things in your calendar in one or two hour blocks and if it's a 400 hour project then you need 200 two hour blocks otherwise you actually have no flipping clue when you're going to have that project done none and to pretend you do is an exercise in frustration and generates, you know, resents, resistance, resentment, and a lot of people giving up. Anyway, so it's the only book that I know that intentionally marries the mechanics of project planning and execution with the mental work. ME stands for mental earthquake, which deals with the stories we have about why we can't overcome addiction, write a book, change who we are. And so it, it is an intentional marriage between the internal workings of motivation and process process with the external um, frameworks of project planning and execution. So that's what the results equation is. Thank you. That's a, that's a very good preview. I'll include a link to the Amazon page so listeners can can pick up the book and, and delve more deeply into that and, and all the other things you've done. But before we wrap up here, I want to throw out an open-ended question, and that is, what other advice do you have for someone who's looking to communicate more effectively in a difficult situation? 
two things. One's going to sound like it's weird and one's going to make sense. Number okay. one is you got to learn to love yourself. When you do anything in any kind of relationship and communication is a relationship. Okay. You know that most keenly when you're, when you're negotiating or communicating with a peer, when there's an imbalance of power, if one party is more important than the other, you become less aware of the relationship, the true nature of the relationship, and more focused on the imbalance in power, which is artificially inflated in the construct of society that we have right now. So when you are completely confident about who you are as a person, you love yourself, you are comfortable with your own divine beingness, and you have a project to do, that allows you to disconnect the outcome of the communication from your own self-worth and value and all of the hooks that actually have nothing to do with the project at hand. But we connect them because we don't know not to and we tie our worth and everything else to that. So the first thing is to learn to love yourself well. And that's also in the results equation because it's part of the mental earthquake piece. Because until you do that, all of your planning and execution is tainted and hindered, sabotaged, if you will, by self depreciating habits, language, and practices that you have. And you have them, I can tell you you have them, unless you have intentionally addressed them and eliminated them. You, don't, you may not know you have them and how much they're controlling you, but you have them unless you've gone to work and gotten rid of them. All right, so that's the other one. The second one is to be, become detached from the outcome. And what I mean by that is not that you don't care what the answer is of the negotiation. Of course you do. But becoming detached from the outcome allows you to not have it be one way and only one way and to put a list of non-negotiables that, that some of which might make sense, but many of which are preferences and not non-negotiable. And when you become attached to an outcome, almost like this situation in Europe right now, it seems like one country is married to a certain outcome and they're not paying attention to what they started and what's going on. And I'm intentionally not using country names because I'm not trying to start a political conversation. Although my wife is Ukrainian and her dad was born in Odessa. But anyway, that's front and center for us. But anyway, you, becoming detached from the outcome is not abdication. It is not indifference and it is not not owning a result. You can own a result, but at the same time, be willing to compromise where it makes sense. And if you listen well and you know the other person's needs, you can truly be looking for a solution that, that can solve the problem and ask yourself really simply, will it work? Well, then it's fine. It's a fabulous tip for managers that operate or that manage people. When someone brings you a solution or a paper or a project or something, will it work? The question isn't, is it the absolute best it can be? And it is, is it exactly like I would do it? The answers to those questions don't matter. What matters is, will it work? And if it will work, do it. And so that's what I would talk about, have people think about in the context of getting to the outcome. And if you're married to the outcome that my my name, my imprint, my face, my word is like almighty, then you're going to have trouble all the time in your communication, your negotiations, and in your relationships. Very true. Colin, we have uh, shared some experiences. We have covered a lot of ground and uh, given my listeners, I think, a lot to think about. I really appreciate your taking this time to be with us today. You're fabulously welcome. And I want it on your episode. I want to honor and thank you for the work you're doing. Podcasts are a labor of love. Your desire and intention to do good, to add good to the world, to help people with your experience, your expertise, and your love is wonderful. It's delightful. And I want to honor you in your own episode. So thank you for the work you're doing. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo at jimmyandgroup.com for our original music and to Rachel Greenberger for our original art. Please send questions to WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.